Today on the podcast, we have Ben Anson, who is the manager of the Pitchfork Ranch. And we talk all things managing your ranch, the tough decisions involved, and the challenges and the opportunities when managing a historic ranch, making those tough decisions, and protecting your livestock while thinking about legacy and the future and all of the past of the ranch and how we can respect and honor that. And it's a great conversation. So I'm excited for you to join us. Hello, everyone. And we are so excited to have Ben joining us today. Ben, thank you for being on the podcast. Yeah, thanks, Caroline, for having me. My name's Ben Anson. Um, I'm the manager of the Pitchfork Ranch in Matitsi, Wyoming. I've been here for six years now. Before we get kind of into your background, you live in a beautiful place in Wyoming. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, we're pretty fortunate to be here. Couldn't, couldn't have really chose a better, a better spot. I grew up about 60 miles east of here, so I'm fairly close to home, which is, which is nice too. Absolutely. Tell me a little bit, have you always been involved in agriculture? What led you to the pitchfork? I'd say, yeah, to, to some extent. So when I was a kid, I was probably two years old, I guess. My parents bought me and my sister an old cow from some neighbors. Um, my dad was actually an ag teacher and FFA advisor um, when I was growing up. So we kind of grew a little small herd on my parents' place there that I kind of shared with my sister. We kept our cows separate, but we had the same brand on them and everything and kind of raised some 4-H and FFA steers out of those and then just kind of worked for area ranches kind of growing up there and then uh, went to college and kind of headed a different direction. I didn't go to, to college for ag or anything like that. I thought I wanted to be a game warden. So I went and got a wildlife management degree and figured out I, I like the rangeland side of things. So I ended up getting a rangeland minor while I was there. And probably the middle of my sophomore year of college, I figured out that the wildlife thing wasn't really for me, but my school was paid for and I didn't want to have to change majors and go an extra year. So I kind of, I just headed down that path but knew that's not really what I wanted to do anymore. And, you know, as, as I got further into college, you know, the summer jobs I was getting were more, more ag related and more ag related. Then finally, uh, my senior year of college, I decided to go to TCU when I finished my undergrad. Uh, they have a ranch management program down there in Fort Worth, Texas. So I spent a year down there and that was probably the best college that, that money could buy for me. Learned a ton down there kind of led me to, to where I am today. Out of TCU, I came here to the Pitchfork and was kind of doing a little bit of everything for them and then kind of got into just just more dealing with cows more than anything and kind of just cowboy in there for a few years. And after about three or four years, the owner here called me over to his house one day and asked me if I wanted to take over managing the ranch. I thought it was a pretty good opportunity, so I, I took him up on it. Now I've been managing the place for, for two years now, I guess, so. Perfect. Tell me a little bit about the Pitchfork and kind of what your guys' operation is there and some things oh, like that. Oh, man. We have pretty long history. The founder of the ranch, Otto Frank, he was a German that came over here in the 1870s, I guess, and he founded this place in 1878. So I don't know how that stacks up with the oldest ranches in Wyoming, but I imagine it's probably up there. Kind of remained with him. He, uh, he never married or had, had any kids. And so when he passed away, it was my understanding, went to his sisters and then kind of got 
jumbled up there a little bit. And the next kind of big name that came along was uh, Charles Belden, married into the ranch, who was probably one of the first real famous Western photographers. So we have a lot of his pictures hanging around, a lot of black and white, pretty cool old cowboy photos. A lot of Hereford cattle that they ran here up until the 80s, like everybody else in this part of the country. And then the Angus breed kind of came on pretty strong there in the in the 80s. Everybody started converting over to that. And then we run at such a high elevation here. The then owner decided he was going to start running a Salir cross with the Angus cows. And so uh, those cows were pretty dang hardy and a little, little high-headed. There's some old videos you can watch of cows chasing people up the fence in the alleyway, stuff like that. Pretty comical. And so one thing I've kind of tried to do is they, the feedlots, you know, they got to the point where they realized the Salir were a little high-headed. And so we were kind of, you know, getting knocked when we went to sell our calves. So in the past couple of years, we kind of started converting over to, to Sim Angus and kind of breeding out the Salir in our cow herd. And we've kind of been doing that a couple of ways this year. Over half the bulls I turned out were Sim Angus bulls. And then I've got about a quarter of the cow herd now is, is Sim Angus cows. I don't keep any replacement heifers um, out of our stuff. I, uh, I go buy replacement heifers from some, some friends in, in Colorado. They raise, raise pretty nice cattle down there. And so that's the fastest way I could find to kind of change our, our genetics over. And, you know, when we really got to putting a pencil to it, I was about, oh, this year I'll be about $200 ahead purchasing a replacement rather than raising it myself. So, Yeah, absolutely. And talk to me a little bit how you market your calves. So we've tried doing a couple different things. You know, they used to just have a a guy here that would that would bid on everybody's calves in the area that was raising Salir. And then um, when I started working here, we switched over and uh, using Superior Livestock. I like Superior, um, you know, biggest, biggest video auction in the in the US. And I think that's where you get, you know, true price discovery, which I appreciate. We actually just sold our calves yesterday on there. But then we've been doing a couple other things where Oh, I put 50 head of heifers on feed last fall um, after we weaned them. And so they're fats right now that are, oh, I think I got kill dates set up for the end of September. So we're kind of doing some some direct marketing, which is comes with its challenges too. But it was kind of a way for us to get away from just the, the cattle buyers. I mean, because they aren't really getting anything from the packers to trickle down into the feedlots. So then the feedlots aren't giving us anything. And it's kind of a way where, where we can control all of our costs. And then we can we can hopefully market it directly to people for, you know, maybe a little cheaper than grocery store prices and maybe put a better product in front of them at the same time. Absolutely. It's an interesting concept to be able to sell a product to the consumer at equal to market value or lower yeah. <laughs> all while putting more money in your pocket yeah yeah I mean it's great because I can the way I figured I can finish out my fat calf and then I can have them I pay for the slaughter on them and uh you order beef from us you get it and get it cut up any any which way you want so then instead of one inch steaks you know I like one and a half inch steak you know, and I like steaks and I don't need a lot of roast. So I cut up, you know, some of those lesser cuts of meat that are usually roast. I, I make steaks out of them. And of course, I'm a little biased, but I really like our meat. So I, I enjoy that part of it and kind of seeing, seeing how that side of the market works and kind of helping educate people along the way. Absolutely. And it, it really does allow you to get to know the consumer in a whole different aspect when you're selling meat right directly to them. Yeah, absolutely. And I think 
in this day and age, you know, people want to know where their food comes from. And you can talk about, you know, the cool country origin labeling and all that, you know, product of the USA. Well, now they aren't just getting product of the USA, they're getting product of the Pitchfork Ranch, you know, something that we born and raised here. And we were able to take care of for its entire life. So I think that's pretty neat. I would agree. Let's talk about some things that you have done since you became manager. What are some either management decisions that you've changed or you guys are working towards or things you're Um, trying out? I tell you, you know, I struggle a little with me just working here, you know, for for an owner and he's he is fantastic to work for. And I have I have a lot of freedom in in what I do and the decisions I make. So I kind of get to sit down and I can analyze a, a budget or a cash flow and kind of nitpick at some of those things where I think there could be some potential cost savings for us. One of the first big things I did that I actually did when I was just cowboying here was uh, we sold all of our hay equipment and went to uh, to a custom hay crew. We, at the time, we were we were getting one cutting of grass hay on a thousand thousand acres of ground, and if we've got two ton of hay an acre, we were we were really doing it. Well, when you stuck a pencil to paper, it was a pretty big savings. You know, we saved almost thirty dollars a ton by converting to custom hay crew. I already kind of touched on purchasing replacement heifers rather than than raising our own. And I understand the guys that do raise their own, they probably are pretty proud of their genetics and what they've done with their cow herd. And I, I can see the reasoning behind it. But for us, you know, wanting to change genetics, you know, I'm a, I'm $200 ahead, better off if I go purchase a, a replacement heifer. One of the decisions we made recently was implanting our, our steer calves. As far as bang for your buck in the cattle industry, there might not be a better thing that you can do outside of an implant. You know, you're Year after year, it's it's proven to add, you know, 18 to 20 pounds a head um, on things that are implanted. And I wasn't seeing that premium for selling a an all-natural calf, or we weren't all-natural, we were NHTC, though, non-hormone-treated cattle. And we were on that program until I decided to Im- implant the calves, just because I was seeing more, more bang for my buck with the, with the implant. Some of our cattle handling, anything I can do to kind of decrease stress on these cows and keep those calves on the gain. Kind of the way I look at, you know, on days where if I can trail cattle, my calves are still probably on the gain. But if I have to push cattle, my calves probably lose at least a day of of gain and weight. And that's where we've been blessed here is, you know, I try not to move more than one pasture at a time. And those cows get to know the pastures and know where the gates are. And so if I get behind them, they usually, they usually trail out. And so that's been good for us as far as, you know, decreasing stress on calves and keeping weight on them. I think you made a really good point about the NHTC and the natural program. We have seen the same thing. So it used to be that natural had a premium. And I still Mm -hmm. think in some cases they do, but not just flat across the board. And I feel part of that is we've lost the integrity of natural. You know, Mm -hmm. I sit in a sale barn often. And they'll say, well, if you want them to be all natural, they'll sign the all natural paperwork. And mm-hmm. to me, that's not what all natural means. You know, they, that work's done at home and they need to be marketed as all natural, not just mm-hmm. they fit into that. And then we kind of saw it with NHTC. And it's almost like in order to see the full premium of that, you have to now step into that gap program mm-hmm. in order to kind of see the premium of skipping that implant. Yeah. I was one of the first people I didn't really like the gap program from the get-go 
I think BQA has a place for a lot of people. I think there's a lot of good things in, in the BQA. I don't make any of our guys get certified BQA, but I, I think it is a good program just as far as, you know, how many times do I go to the neighbors and see somebody, you know, give a shot in the shoulder, or, you know, give a shot in the hip or, you know, and that's all things that, that makes us look bad because maybe hanging on the rail, they don't know where that calf came from. And, you know, if, if somebody were to, to see that was against the cattle business, you know, and their skin and a carcass and they have needles falling out of it and they have injection lesions all over them, you know, that, that gives us a bad look. So I, I think a lot of it, a lot of what they're doing with marketing um, is, is public perception. I, I think that's really important. But like you said, yeah, you, got, you have to keep the integrity in those programs um, at the same time instead of some guy just showing up with a form wanting me to sign an all-natural affidavit, which I... I can do on our heifer calves, but really, you know, that's, that's not how I've planned to market them. You would be amazed at how many cattle we've purchased in the past listed as NHTC or even GAP and mostly on the video mm. and the rep would call after and say, do you really need them to be in that program? Cause they haven't started the paperwork yet. And it's one of my fears in the industry is if we want those programs to have value, we have to treat them as a serious program or they will just turn into, I mean, just the status quo where people do that. You know, there's not much premium because of the integrity. And so I think that it was a smart move to implant your steers. I mean, we see the gain right off the bat of that. And I also think that, you know, that gap program is, I mean, that's where the premium really lies. And I actually have an issue with some of those gap protocols as well. We use a lot of stock mm -hmm. dogs in our operation mm -hmm. and either one or two levels of that gap program does not let you use dogs. And to me, that's where we're on thin ice when we start to get into that kind of information. Yeah. I think one of the things that kind of made me laugh is my wife actually worked for a place that was GAP certified. Um, and I think one of the things in there was, you know, if you're going to doctor something, you have to have professional ropers. Well, you know, most days of the week, I think I'm a, I'm a professional roper, but sure enough, you know, if somebody showed up here and, and was actually going through the program with me, I'd probably miss a dozen times. So yeah, I'll, I'll tell them I'm play -O as long as they don't see me. So Absolutely. Um, I know that you like to watch the cattle market and yep. actively watch it. What are some trends you're noticing and where do you think it's headed? Gosh, you know, I discuss it a lot with various people. You know, we've kind of been been in a in a bull market, you know, and I think we're starting to see some things happening politically in Washington where they're they're starting to put a little pressure on these packers to kind of get some trickle down almost to back to the producer i traded you know just pure pure speculation i used to trade a lot of feeder cattle and wildlife cattle and there were times where i was on top of the world and there were times where i was in the dumps i was probably in the, in the dumps more than i was on top of the world and it, as soon as i thought it was a bull market it turned into a bear market and as soon as i thought it was a bear market it turned into a bull market so you know it can it can change just like that i remember one situation i was in where you know, that plant fire happened in Kansas and I was ducking some long contracts and I couldn't get out of them. That was, I mean, just a, just a miserable feeling. I, I tell people that the good news in the cattle market's never good enough. And the bad news always creates an overreaction. I think, you know, with box beef as high as it is right now, 
and with the pressure for more bidding on on these cattle from the packers um, i think it, it can only help our prices you know like i said we sold our steers yesterday and we were we were 17 cents higher um, this year than we were last year and so maybe next year we'll be back selling two dollar caps but you know it might it might be wishful thinking i'm kind of a eternal optimist in that way but i think you know, you look at historically the cattle business, you know, it, it hasn't kept up with what inflation's done with the rest of the economy. I think there's some changes that should happen there. And I, I honestly don't know how to fix it. But you know, I try to remain remain bullish at all times. One of the coolest things that I've ever seen is I had a feeder or have a feeder in Nebraska that we sell cattle to. And he had mapped out the cattle market on the basement wall since the inception <laughs> of the board. Wow. And it's fascinating because it actually, from a 10,000 foot view, it all looks the same. I mean, yes. it's, it's the exact same bell curve when yep. you take a big step back from, you know, in a 10 year span. So from zero, one to eight, nine, it all looks, I mean, about the same. And so yeah. history repeats itself. We are... Yeah. If that's where we're headed and we're on the upswing of a bell curve, we're going to get high. And yeah. so, you know, we usually see a peak three, four, five. We saw that, you know, in 14 and mm -hmm. 15. And so I would agree with you. I think that there is some opportunity in the market. Yeah. The other thing, though, and I love that you admitted this. We know there's an issue with the packer, but mm -hmm. there's not a lot of great solutions out there. And I think... <laughs> I think if we could all come to the table and say, we don't love what's happening because we need more competition. And I completely, I mean, I'm sure you see it too. There's a reason why there's not very many people who own decent sized packing plants. Yep. It's not an industry that everyone is just running towards to be involved in, but I have not heard a good solution. So I loved hearing you say that just because I feel like part of the reason the cattle industry gets to where it is is because people don't admit that. <laughs> we tend to sometimes have an ego problem. So even just submitting, okay, we haven't heard a good solution. We don't know what the solution is, I think is a very good place to start. Yeah. And I think, you know, looking at, you know, some of the plans that they're trying to push through, like the 50-14, you know, to have 50% of the cattle bid on for a 14-day delivery period, you know, that's going to help the market become current. You know, I 50% might be a stretch because I'm actually, I'm sitting here with a couple friends from, from down in Texas right now. And, you know, down there, there's almost no, no bidding on cattle. Everybody's selling on a grid down there. Up in this part of the world, you know, there's a little more bidding on cattle. You get over into Iowa and there's way more bidding on cattle over there. So I think maybe each state kind of needs its own solution or each region kind of needs its own solution because it's going to be hard for the packers in Texas to start, you know, go from, you know, 2% bidding on cattle to 50% <laughs> bidding on cattle. So may, maybe there's a sweet window in the middle there and, uh, and I'm not, not sure. Um, and another thing, you know, they, they got to speed up production. They get, they have to increase these chain speeds just because, because cattle are getting too big. And I thought, you know, maybe the corn price going up would help us with that because your cost of gains were, were increasing so much in the feedlot when corn went bonkers. You know, maybe maybe our slaughter weights would come down a little bit and we would get a little more current. I think, you know, that might be what's been happening to kind of boost some of these calf prices this year. The one thing I've noticed about that bill that I don't know if we've really ever talked about is if we mandate that they buy them that way, then we have to mandate that people sell them that way. 
Mm-hmm. And that to me is where the challenge is because <laughs> as ranchers, could you imagine if the government came in and said, okay, 50% of your calves have to be sold within 14 days of delivery. We would not yep. want that. And no. so we have to get those guys who custom feed cattle to be willing to say, yes, I will sell them within 14 days of delivery because mm-hmm. we, what we don't want to happen is to lose those custom feeders or those smaller feeders because yep. otherwise we're just going to go to big mega feeders. And then I think we've taken a step in the wrong direction. And so I've been thinking quite a bit about how do we do that? Because if we mandate one side of it, that means someone else has to sell that way. And again, I, I think there's a lot of conversations to be had. And I think we need to have more conversations about how it looks. Yeah. And I think it all boils down to, like you said, you know, it's hard for a cattle feeder to, to sell for 14 day delivery when they know exactly what their break even is. And if somebody comes and offers them just over their break even, it's hard to pass that up six months out. But it's more faith in the packers on the part of the feeders that I think is, is going to have to happen in order, like you said, to, to develop that relationship and, and get the 14 day delivery and know that they're going to treat you well enough to not undercut the market completely when they, when they come by your calves or your, your fats. Yeah, we have a lot of room to work on that trust relationship. Mm-hmm. I have an interesting story. You'll appreciate this. We had some cattle on feed when the fire happened and all during COVID, of course. One of the buyers came into the feedlot we feed at in Colorado and offered a price and the guy sold them and it was way less, I mean, in the 90s. My dad said, well, that's, you know, kind of miserable, but they're fat. I mean, they got to go. And Mm -hmm. we sold them. And about two hours later, the feeder calls back and said, well, the buyer called and he actually offered a dollar more for your fat. He must have felt bad. (laughs) My dad said, I'll take you. But I've never, ever heard of that. Where we have done a handshake agreement. You bought my fat the X price. And you went back to the office and you decided that it wasn't quite enough. And you paid me a little bit more. That is unheard of. Yeah. My dad said, of course, I'll take it. He just said, I've never, ever had that happen in my whole life. Makes you believe they have a conscience. Yeah, which is we need, right? Yeah. (laughs) Um, Tell me a little bit about kind of your guys' production schedule. When do you guys calve and why do you calve then? And all of that. Gosh, so I guess, you know, you kind of asked some of the changes we've made around here to kind of improve our bottom line. That's one thing I forgot to mention. And I've discussed it, you know, I have friends around here who are pretty sharp minds in the cattle business. Um, we need more people like them. But I think one of the biggest things I look at is cow body condition score. So I try to schedule all all my work in keeping my cows in in an ideal body condition score. So I pushed back our calving. We were were calving on the 1st of April for 60 days. This year, we're going to calve on, I think our due date's the 17th of April. Um, My growing season begins about the 15th of May. So if I, if I start calving on the 17th of April, I start feeding hay on about the 10th of April. And the only reason I'm having to do that is because we have a pretty big predator problem here between grizzly bears and wolves. And so I have to keep those cows a little more confined so I can kind of get through them every day and make sure we haven't had any kills. And so that's our calving date. We set up, oh, we have four or five brandings a year where we'll brand anywhere from two to 300 at each of those. And I like my calves to be about six weeks old. I think that's about the ideal age for Brandon one. And then you're, you're kind of 
immunity is wearing out from colostrum and, and your cow's passive immunity to the calf. And then you're hitting them with another round in, in six weeks. Um, and then that, that's getting us to kind of our 205 day when, when we're going to wean the calf and we'll precondition. I give them another round of shots about three weeks before, before we ship them. And, and then we're shipping kind of the first week in November. And so that's kind of what we look at and we're, you know, our, how we, how we graze the cattle is pretty much dictated by it, by the weather here. Um, right now, the cows are on the mountain for another week, um, running at 10 to 11,000 feet elevation um, on a Forest Service permit. And the permit with the Forest Service states that we come off the mountain the, the end of August. So then I, I bring cows home the end of August and I start sexing everything kind of that first week in, in September. I'll sort all my heifer calves from all my scared calves and then keep those, those bunches together through preconditioning and weaning. And that sure makes the day that we ship those calves a lot, a lot easier on us, not having to sex everything that day and stir, stir stuff up so much more. You talked a little bit about predator situation. Tell, yeah. for a lot of our listeners, this is, that's not something they deal with. So tell me a little bit, you know, has this been something that's common on the ranch and what are you guys doing about it? And Oh gosh. I mean, I try to keep eyes on cattle as, as much as possible. You know, we, we've got a grizzly bear problem here that is completely out of control. And according to the federal government, they're still an endangered species. Currently, the only thing legally that I'm allowed to do is haze bears. I can shoot cracker shells at them from a shotgun and, and I'm within my right to do that. But I, I cannot put a bullet in them. <laughs> and I wish I could a lot of days. I actually, I was out, we have, government trappers here that are employed by the federal government and uh, I was out with our government trapper one night this spring and we were watching a bear through his night vision binoculars and this bear was 100 yards away on the left side of the pickup and I heard a calf beller 100 yards away on the right side of the pickup and as we're sitting there in this field not I said 100 it's probably 300 yards away kind of over a hill a bear had come in and, and killed a calf as we're as we're sitting there. So that's the kind of stuff that I have to deal with. And there's there's no recourse for me there. Of course, I get paid by the Wyoming Game and Fish for that calf because it was killed by a predator. But at no point am I allowed to do anything about, about that predator. Since the wolves are no longer endangered, we have a little more that we can do with them. And so far this year, we've kind of avoided the wolf problems. I had three calves killed by wolves last year that we knew about. And so far this year, I've had zero killed by wolves that I, that I know about. But according to the law, I can shoot a wolf if it's, if it's in the act of killing a calf. So that makes you feel a little better. It doesn't make you feel any better that, <laughs> that they're there though. But you know, it's, it's part of our landscape now and it's something that we're, we're learning how to live with, I guess. Is it a problem that, I mean, the grizzly bears are getting worse. Yeah. And do you worry about human safety or is it just your livestock safety you're worried about at the moment? You know, I don't worry about human safety probably as much as I should. You know, one of my favorite things to do, I think it's a kick in the pants, is if I see a bear and I'm horseback, I usually chase them, put a pretty pretty good chase on them and give them my best war cry. And it's it's my theory. It's probably a dumb theory, but it's my theory. If I'm charging them first, they don't have a chance to charge me. So I have, I have had them turn around on me though, and that, that makes the guy a little nervous. The best tool I have for getting bears away are my dogs. You know, all, all my border collie cow dogs, they, they also hate bears. So that makes a guy feel a little better. I usually don't 
pack a firearm if I'm horseback. Usually don't pack bear spray anywhere. So I, I rely pretty heavily on my dogs. And I think, you know, most of the crew here is about the same as me. We had that grizzly bear kill, well, a couple of them in Montana. You guys have had some in Wyoming this year as well. Yeah. They're definitely out there. <laughs> it makes you think twice, doesn't it, when you, when you see a story like that. I kind of like fishing, and we have pretty good fishing on the river through the ranch here. Sometimes standing in that water, you can't necessarily hear what's sneaking up on you. And so that's what I'm saying. I, I just rely on, rely on my dogs to kind of make me aware what's going on they're gonna they're gonna smell it or see it before I ever do so dogs are worth a lot yep so I want to ask a question that I'm not sure anyone's probably asked in this way but a lot of the Kettleman U podcast listeners are people who might hire a ranch manager Mm -hmm. down the road or even just help a hard man something like that so tell me a little bit from your perspective in hiring people or even hiring day labor what should they be aware of? What should someone who's coming in and looking at your finances or, you know, making those management decisions, what are some traits, some things they should be able to ask to know if it's a good fit? I think one of the biggest things is, you know, a lot of people, you know, they love the lifestyle and don't get me wrong. I love the lifestyle too, but more than a lifestyle, it's a business and, and every decision should be treated as a business decision. There's a dollar behind everything you do. And so, so I make, I try to put a pencil to, to pretty much every decision I make with, within our business. And I think that's something that's kind of, kind of gets lost on, on some of these places. And I, there's a lot of guys that don't have a college education that are great businessmen. So I don't know that the answer is necessarily a college education or anything like that, but I, I dang sure want somebody who knows how to run a cow budget and know, knows what the cost of a cow is within a year. Um, that's one of my pet peeves is, is, you know, I have guys come tell me, you know, oh, what's the cost for you to run a cow for a year? And, you know, I, I tell them what it is and it's usually over $900. And then, you know, they come back with, oh, it, it only cost me $500 to run a cow. And I said, well, you don't know all your numbers. You, you aren't including all of your costs in that. I think a lot of guys leave out the land costs. A lot of guys leave out depreciation things like that. And those are two of two of our biggest costs are land costs and depreciation. I think finding somebody as far as management who knows the business angle and is going to look out for your best interest. There's a lot of trust that needs to be built there. As far as day work, you know, most of my day work that I bring in are, are guys who are, are cowboy and, and are horseback. They're people I've known for a long time. They can show up with a 10-day colt and get the job done. If they want most of the guys that I bring in, they, they run nice dogs. They want to bring their dogs. I generally don't have a problem with that. We don't use dogs in pens, but in a, in a pasture setting, absolutely. And I, I want guys that are, that are like-minded when it comes to, to handling cattle. I don't want that guy out there hooping and hollering and chasing everything around. I want them to have a pretty quiet approach to everything they do. Because like I said, I mean, stress is probably the number one thing that makes calves not gain weight. So anything that I can do to help that out, I'm money ahead. When you talked about making sure that people think about the business as a business versus just as a lifestyle, that's something I have preached and preach constantly because I think that it's easy to blur that line. And Mm -hmm. that's when you get into trouble Mm -hmm. is when that line gets blurred. It's a business that we just love doing because of the lifestyle, not the other way around. Yeah, I think 
one of the best people I was able to talk to when I went to school at TCU. Um, and it was our first field trip we went on. And actually, one of my friends sitting here, he was in class with me. And I think he'd agree with me is, you know, we met a guy down there. His name was Pete Pons, and he's been pretty successful. And he's kind of gruff and rough. And you get to talking to this guy and, and you realize he's probably one of the smartest people you've ever met. And he tells us a story about how I think it was probably in the 70s. He's looking at, you know, this isn't the business he wants to be in. And, and you know, he's treating it more like a like a lifestyle. And it's almost like he had, a, had an epiphany sitting in the beer joint one night. He had, he had this epiphany that he needed to start treating every decision like a business decision instead of a lifestyle decision. It completely changed his operation around. He never brings in a load of cattle that he loses money on now. Hedges a lot of a lot of feeder type cattle. That was pretty eye opening to me to always bring in a load of cattle that you can hedge for a profit. Yeah, I wish more people would think about that. That is one of my missions: is we have to view it as a business, and your business should make money. So the last question that I have for you is what's some advice that you would give either a beginning rancher or someone who's looking to take over an operation or even manage an operation? Walk us through some tips and tricks or some things you wish that they should know. You know, I think I'm just going to echo a lot of guys that I've listened to and, and say, you know, it's, it's all about sharpening your pencil. If you want to live the lifestyle, but you can't figure out a way to make money doing it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be pretty tough. So it's figuring out, you know, exactly what your numbers are going to be and then finding good resources, finding smart people that you can bounce ideas off of and just having guys, you know, if I make a decision, I bounce a lot of ideas off my crew here because a lot of them have kind of been in this longer than I have and have seen more than I have. And so they get ideas and, and they bounce them off of me and, and I do the exact same to them. We've made a lot of decisions that way. And it's not just that, you know, it's, it's our neighbors that I, that I admire that I go to when I have a new idea because somewhere, someplace, somebody else has done that more than like just having good people around you and good mentors and knowing what your numbers are and, and knowing what your bottom line is. They say that you become who you hang out with. And yeah. so it's important to surround yourself by good people, both personally and professionally. Well, thank you so much, Ben. I think this was a great conversation. Thank you so much, Caroline. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this with me. Are you interested in joining a community of progressive cattlemen? Cattlemen U doors are opening this May from the 2nd through 31st. We're excited to welcome people like you into our community dedicated to learning and reaching our goals. Cattlemen U is for any producer, whether you're just starting out or want to refresh your skills. You can join the waitlist today at cattlemenulive.com backslash join. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Cattleman U podcast. And remember, the grass is greener where you water it.